Planet Worker, a world in development. Canberra, 2012 to 2014. It's six in the morning, freezing cold, and I'm a little disorientated waking to a foreign bed. Africa? Asia? No, Canberra, the nation's capital. It's October 2012 and I'm in the Australian National University Lodge and here for a week as part of a leaders program trying to discern Australia's Asia plan. There's a packed schedule of meetings with officials, academic and diplomats, and lunches and dinners aplenty. First, a perfunctory contribution to fitness with a run through the suburbs. In one of its travellers' top cities in the world four, Hooks, Condé Nast rated Canberra as one of six cities in the world where you would want to get lost in. To anyone who has got lost and who doesn't want to be lost in Canberra, this is scarcely believable. Not only do the suburbs demonstrate the lack of personality of the planned city that Canberra is, Canberra apparently also has no pedestrians and the roads loop in circles and crescents back to arbitrary points and save for the more experienced cab drivers and your GPS, you could be lost here for hours. I've access to neither on my morning run and I'm late for my first morning briefing. Australian politics is a supercharged soap opera with an alarmist focus on the inane that obscures some of the most important challenges of our age. Climate change, rights, equity. Instead, the news is full of personality clashes, verbal attacks and knee-jerk analysis. The sitting government is in trouble. The opposition smell blood and is savaging every move mercilessly, regardless of consequence for Australia's international standing in the Asia-Pacific region. It's a contradiction that's puzzling. An avowedly non-violent society that condones pitbull attack politics. It's part of an extremely individualist culture that focuses on the short term. In fact, Australia tips the charts in Hofstadter's cross-cultural rankings for individualism and short-term orientation. Consider, for example, that the average tenure of CEOs in Australia is less than three years. The Prime Minister's tenure may be even shorter. All the talk is about China's rise and the threat this poses to regional balance based on American dominance. As one cynical of America's influence on the region, namely bullying and a massive sub-regional war that still affects generations, this strikes me as a positive. Conservative, academic and government speakers extol the need for military strength as a counterweight to Chinese influence. We apparently need more guns, warships and submarines. A number of us are bemused. A nation of 22 million with a lightweight military acting as a counterweight to the might of 1 billion highly motivated people organised by a competent government. Let's not mention the 11,000 state-sponsored hackers or the rising ownership of Australian bonds. In any event, all the Chinese have to do is suspend imports of Australian resources and we're screwed. India rates are focused too, and here's a bit of an edge. Australia is standing by a decision not to sell uranium to India when Canada does. 
and there have been recently been highly publicised attacks on Indian students in Victoria and a hysterical reaction in the Indian media. The Australian media has played its part as well, with tabloid-style criticism of India's preparations for the Commonwealth Games. The Indians are not amused, and the ambassador's representatives do not hold back. A refreshing dose of diplomatic up-yours. The Australian public seems oblivious to the implications of pissing off the world's future superpower. But of course, Australian politics takes the cake, and we found ourselves in the parliamentary gallery during a crucial session. A raft of climate change laws are being tabled, and the Conservative opposition has indicated it will do whatever it can to to torpedo them. The atmosphere on the floor is immediately poisonous, with the PM and opposition leader exchanging acrimonious comments and personal insults. The Speaker's mood is already vicious, as the summarily expansion of two parliamentarians for speaking out of turn demonstrates. Suddenly, an entire section of the gallery stands in a pre-planned protest with banners and chanting, the central theme being no carbon tax, a right-wing pre-planned opposition to a proposed emissions tax. The Speaker's mood worsens and he orders the ejection of the objectors. They're mostly elderly, prompting later jokes as to a rent a pensioner ploy and file out obligingly, palpably excited and seemingly satisfied to exit having made their point. The scene turns comical. One objector has sat down in the middle of the empty section of seats and taken on a fixed stare ahead of him, pretending to be an innocent and oblivious to the fact that the intention of the entire parliament and gallery is focused on him. The ushers are confused, uncertain as to his complicity, and look around for help. They look to a couple sitting a few rows back, who dob him in with a slight nod, and out he goes. The laws pass. Back at the university, the tenor of the discussion is pale in comparison. One official after another compete with each other in the art of speaking without saying anything, and the absence of real strategy is patent. After five days, the question stands, what is Australia's Asia plan? Nobody is able to articulate it. I'm left with a sense of bewilderment at the close of the week in the capital. Never mind Asia, surely we need to do better than this. Canberra. 2013. The change of government in Canberra in 2013 has brought with it a radical shift in foreign policy and I'm back in the capital to hear the proposal to disband Australia's bilateral aid agency, AusAid. Dramatic changes in the international aid programs have followed changes of government in Canada and now Australia. The similarities are uncanny. Both have seen the emergence of a Conservative government intent on reshaping their national and international agendas and imprinting their ideology early and harshly. Both countries have cut their development assistance budgets, dissolved their bilateral aid agencies, CEDA and AusAid, and integrated the international aid programme into their foreign affairs and trade departments. 
Both emphasised the need for aid to be more aligned with national interest and both beat the drum of economic development being the panacea for poor people. Focusing on economic or national interest also removes poor people from the forefront of the development process. Instead of looking to build the development process around the needs of poor people, the new narrative would have us believe that economic growth is the answer. However, decades of development experience have demonstrated clearly that it is precisely the poor who rarely benefit from grandiose economic development projects and ill-informed investments of aid capital. Moreover, who said this was an either-or situation? Clearly, economic development is an important prerequisite for macro changes in the poverty status of countries, but economic growth in many countries are primarily driven by trade opportunities, targeted private sector investment, and linked to important governance changes. These should be the terrain of an effective trade and foreign relations agenda by countries such as Canada and Australia. Aid, on the other hand, should have at its core a consideration of protection for those most at risk and equitable access to the benefits of citizenship and growth opportunities for poor people who are often marginalised. This requires a commitment to a growth plus protection plus equity agenda integrated across well-defined and distinct trade, foreign affairs and aid programs. The shift to a DFAT-D model that embeds development assistance within a trade agenda and subjects development assistance decision-making to political interests is not new. This approach opens up old paradigms of tied aid and commercial self-interest and undermines significant strides in the global environment on building aid effectiveness and focusing aid on poor people. It is a classic neoliberal agenda. Internationally, the subversion of aid to the primacy of economic development does not put human beings at the centre and the poor will not benefit meaningfully from this agenda. Nationally, the allocation of international assistance funds to domestic agendas that undermine the poor and further put poor people at risk is a gross violation of the intent of aid. In Australia's case, the contrast could not be starker. Poor and vulnerable men, women and children who may have a legitimate claim to asylum are incarcerated in concentration camps in PNG and Nauru that are paid for from the Development Aid Programme budget. This is not humane government. This is neoliberal political ideology without people. Canberra, November 2014. As 2014 closes, I'm part of a session reflecting on Australia's annual Global Citizenship Report Card, which presents a depressing picture. In fact, the years ended so dismally that 2014 may well be the most significant decline in global standing than at any other time in the country's history. A recent announcement of a massive cut in the overseas aid budget over the next four years, equating to $3.7 billion, or 25% of the overall program, will see Australia's aid contribution drop to 0.22% of GNI, its lowest point ever. 
The announcement flies in the face of foreign policy statements made during the year and appears to expose Australia's Foreign Minister, Julie Bishop, as a lame duck amongst her male peers. The cut to aid demonstrates a government that has little regard for the notion of global citizenship. It has little regard for the global aid targets set by the OECD and the sensitivities of aid relationships with its neighbouring Pacific and Asian nations. To add insult to injury, the Australian government is using aggressive and patronising language to justify its decisions, calling on poorer nations to get their act together. But the aid cuts only mirror a belligerence towards global agreements and international law demonstrated throughout the year that has seen breaches of the Refugee Convention, the Convention on the Rights of the Child and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. The main reason for this is Australia's tough stance on asylum seekers and refugees. As part of its policy, the Australian Government introduced measures to turn boats carrying asylum seekers back in international waters. Employing the Australian Navy, it resulted in repeated incursions into Indonesian waters and imprisoning Sri Lankan and Indian asylum seekers on a Navy vessel for a protracted period of time. This is on the back of revelations that the Australian government has been illegally spying on Indonesia's political leaders. This has brought the Navy into disrepute. Knowingly instituting a policy which puts lives at risk is inconsistent with Australia's obligations under the Refugee Convention. It also breaches Australia's obligations under the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Then there is the matter of children in detention. In March of this year, the Australian Immigration Department acknowledged there were 929 children in immigration centre facilities and alternative places of detention in Australia, and a further 177 children in offshore detention in Nauru. This is clearly in breach of Article 37 of the Convention of the Rights of the Child, which sets out international benchmarks for the care and rights of all children, and also Article 9 of the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, which seeks to protect liberty and security of the individual against arbitrary arrest or detention. The United Nations guidelines on the detention of asylum seekers make it clear that children protected by the Convention of the Rights of the Child should not be placed in detention for any length of time. In fact, several complaints about Australia's detention policy have been made to the United Nations Human Rights Committee, the international body that monitors compliance with the Covenant. The committee has previously found Australia's policy of mandatory detention of both children and adults to be in violation of the Covenant. These findings are not restricted to international bodies and in November, a bipartisan parliamentary committee into human rights found that proposed changes to the Migration Act are incompatible with Australia's human rights obligations. The committee's report is scathing of nearly all of the government's proposed changes to the Act, saying they would put Australia at odds with international human rights law. If this wasn't bad enough, in the same month, a UN Committee Against Torture report has found Australia's detention of refugees, 
including children, is cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment forbidden by international law. The report noted that under the Convention Against Torture, Australia must prevent torture and other acts of cruel, inhumane or degrading treatment or punishment when people are imprisoned or detained. Based on this, the committee called on Australia to stop putting asylum seekers into mandatory detention and to make sure that asylum seekers on Manus Island and Nauru are treated more humanely and their claims are promptly and properly assessed. On the globe's greatest challenge, climate change, there is no variation in this stance. Efforts to establish workable global agreements have been undermined by the Australian government's oppositional advocacy. In November, Barack Obama announced the establishment of a $3 billion climate change fund, throwing in stark relief the Australian government's efforts to keep climate change off the agenda of the G20 summit, hosted by Australia. Ironically, the Department of Environment releases statistics indicating that the carbon tax introduced by the previous government has likely resulted in the biggest single drop in annual emissions. Pity this government dumped it. There is only one conclusion to be drawn from the continuous blatant disregard for global agreements and international law. Australia's government has chosen at best to undermine international cooperation and challenge the international community. And at worst, Australia is the world's newest rogue state.